0: All right, time for our first fiscal focus of the year, brought to you again by InfoChoice, your choice of information on Australian consumer finance. Now, a lot of us like to see the start of a new year as a clean slate, an opportunity for a fresh start, and perhaps that applies to your finances and financial behaviours. For instance, you may have made a New Year's resolution to save more and spend less on frivolous items and activities. Some of you may have even considered seeing a, quali- a qualified financial advisor to help you put a financial plan in place for the year. Well, joining us to discuss this and more is Vince Scully, the founder of Financial Advice Service Life Sherpa. Vince, thanks for joining us so much on The Savings Tip
1: Jar. Thanks for having me, Harrison and Dom. Uh, it's great to, great to be here. And of course, it is a new year and many people are rushing around going to the gym and doing more with their money. And interestingly enough, despite the fact that New Year's resolutions get such a bad rap, starting on a significant day like
2: your birthday or New Year's does actually help with achieving mm.
0: It's a mindset thing, definitely.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And we've kind of um explored that in previous episodes. It's, you know, less about knowing what the cheapest home loan rate is. It's all about um like like, like that's all for naught if your if your mindset isn't there to follow it up. Um so just kicking off, you know, it's approaching the end of January and we're running out of a timeline as to how as to how long we can uh, keep wishing people happy new year and whatnot. Um, but what are some sort of emerging themes in the financial advice space for 2024?
1: Uh, I mean, the big, the big news, of course, is the change, change the tax rates, which was potentially tweaked at the last moment. But that would have made um, the vast bulk of people pay the same tax rate. Which you know changes the way couples might look at money. Where you know we don't necessarily recommend that you have a single bank account, but you certainly need a single system, money system as a couple. We say one bed, one one money system. And so, if you're not arranging the money between you tax efficiently, then you're leaving money on the table. So the tax rate changes do play into that um inflation looks like it's starting to come down at least from the goods perspective uh services are still running up uh pay does appear to be keeping slightly ahead of inflation and um so what might have seemed like a black prospect moving into 2023 is probably not looking quite so bad in 2024 um you know we escaped a recession um and uh i think uh, soft landing is being well-engineered around the world. So um, you know, a little dose of inflation m- seems scary because most people who became an adult in the last 20 years have never seen inflation before. So ticking up from you know, long-term averages of three to seven looked pretty scary, especially when most of the changes were in um Things that are very obvious, like fuel. Uh, Fuel is one that really sticks out because we tend to buy the same amount all the time. So you notice the difference between $80 to fill a tank and $110 really clearly. So that one hits home. Um, Coffee's obviously popped up. Um, That's largely driven by labor, plus some crop failures around the world. And again, that's one that we... We see in our day-to-day spending, which is why it gets the press that it does. You know, One of the most common pieces of advice you see bandied around is the reason you can't buy a house is because you spend too much at Starbucks or on, on coffee, and the poor latte gets a really bad rap, um, which was the theme of my first book, The Latte Fallacy, which was broadly saying, actually, that's not why you can't afford a house. And, you know, why pick on coffee? Um, we spend nine times as much on alcohol. So why is alcohol not the problem? Um, avocado and, and toast. Or indeed avocado and toast. And so that brings me to, you know, we talk about the the six big decisions in life, that if you get the six big ones right, you don't have to worry about the, the minor ones, which are much harder to deal with. So the big six decisions, you know, are the things that really matter when it comes to to our money, we start off with wh- where you live, what you drive, how you prepare for the unexpected, uh, um, how you provide for retirement, um, who you marry, and how you make a living. Mm-hmm. And if we get those right, the smaller decisions become less significant. So where you live is is a big one. You know, we spend forty percent of our total lifetime income on our on our home generally. And um, yeah, that's between buying it, paying interest, paying bank fees, renovating, repairing, moving, um, and so yeah. If, I don't. You've probably been to a few open ho- homes in your in your time. Um, Dom, Absolutely. But, you, know, if you go you, you go to an open home, and what does the agent say? This will sell in the low seven hundreds. Or low 800s or low 900s, whatever it is. But that's sort of co- estate agent code for somewhere between 710 and 750, as if those two are immaterially different. But the difference between paying 710,000 and 735,000 will pay for a lifetime of lattes. And um, yeah, that's a decision that you make once, whereas the latte decision is an everyday decision. So that's the big one. Of course, where you drive, you know, which is more driven by how much you spend and how how long you keep it. Um, people get obsessed about car lines. Um, whereas if you actually look at the cost of owning a car, biggest single expense is depreciation and um the advantage whereas the interest on your car loan is probably less than 10% of the total cost of ownership. And the advantage of having a loan is that it makes that depreciation turn up in your day-to-day expenses, which means that when you write the check for your car loan, the depreciation is in there, and so you pay for the car over the time you use it. And for most people, you are borrowing anyway, because if you've saved $30,000 to buy a new car, you could pay that money off your home loan. And so the money is being borrowed. The only question is, well, what interest rate am I paying and how, what period am I paying it off over? Whereas if you um, you know, pay cash, you're probably paying off your car loan over 30 years because you don't change your home repayments. So those two big decisions are you know, critical to getting it right. And of course, where you live, dictates a lot of your spending yeah you know. so our kids go to the same schools we we go to the same we shop at the same shops we have the we holiday in the same places um our kids play sports together so a lot of our spending is driven by where you live and um, i can tell you that the iga in mossman
2: is a lot more expensive than the iga in blacktown i, I tell you what the um like yes there's more uh more pressing issues than the price of your latte, but it is a bit of a kick in the teeth when your local that you go to every day or like most days a week does go up from four fifty to five dollars. But yeah, compared to a home or um, or marrying the wrong person who's not on the same page as you financially, uh, they're probably yeah. a lot more costly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And interesting, I had a an argument with my editor when I
1: was um, publishing the recent book, whereas I'd done the latte calculation based on three dollars fifty. This is two years ago, and he was based in Melbourne and insists that you couldn't possibly buy a a coffee for $3.50. And so I went around every coffee shop within a kilometre of our office here in North Sydney. And and $3.50 was actually the price. But within weeks of that discussion, uh, so we ended up, I think, settling on $4 something in the book. Um, But within weeks of that, um, we had... uh, yeah, labor costs go up, inflation hit, and uh, coffee crop fail in much of South America. So, coffee prices have gone through. So, I think it's now four dollars fifty, um, which is one of the advantages of buy, drinking long blacks instead of lattes, especially if you're uh, not looking for for oat milk or soy milk. So, certainly, if you crank up the yeah, you go for a double shot soy latte, it certainly costs a uh, a lot of money. So Vince,
0: just in this uh, environment of potentially softening inflation and potentially you know lower interest rates, as they're sort of forecasting for the end of the year, is there anything particular um, that you know consumers and um, savers should should keep in mind for this year? Things that they should be looking at for their budgets or their investment portfolios. Essentially, what are your best money tips for 2024?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think talking about you know what we think might happen. Over the years, an interesting one. We generally try not to make forecasts here at LifeShop, and we try to discourage people from trying to make investment decisions or, or even spending decisions and what they think might or might not happen. And so every year, I, I clip out the forecasts from the newspaper and pull them out in the next year, and they are invariably wrong. So rather than trying to predict, um, we try to Plan, prepare and protect, so plan for what you could or would do or the impact of what would happen if these forecasts did come true. Um, prepare for that event and where that's a big deal, protect. And that's a good example when it comes to home loans, You know, the distinction between borrowing at variable rate and borrowing at a fixed rate. Um, you know, Australia's traditionally been a variable rate market. Unlike the US, for example, and um, many people who try to make this dis- distinction, uh, this decision: should I go fixed or should I go variable? Um, it's going to, I was trying to say, well, do I think interest rates are going to go up or down? And the truth is that this is not a bet against the bank. The bank's not taking a position; they're going to hedge their book anyway. Um, so the question for you is not whether you think you're going to pull one over on the bank, because you won't, um, but you know do you value flexibility over certainty? So if interest rates did go up by one, two, three, four percent, what would that do to your ability to put bread on the table and live your life? The answer to that question is, I'd be stuffed, then you should fix, even if it's going to cost you more than um, going variable, which you can't predict except or you can't work out except in hindsight. And if you go back over the last twenty or thirty years, you find that, yeah. I did some research looking at what the variable rate at the start compared, so what the fixed three-year rate at the start of a period looked like compared to what you would have paid over that three years had you stayed variable. And the answer is about half the time you win and half the time you lose. But when you lose, you tend to lose more by going variable. So Mm. The cost the cost of getting it wrong, and getting it wrong means can only be told in hindsight, mm. tends to favor fixed rates on average. But the real test is, yeah, why am I doing this? And I'm doing this largely because I'm prepared to trade off flexibility in the upside of what might happen if rates go down to protect my downside. And so that concept of, you know, Repair, planning and protecting rather than predicting is important. Um, but certainly the markets are pricing in uh, rates to be close to peaking, if not actually peaked, and potentially on the way down in the shorter term. Um, I'm not sure I honestly buy that argument, but... Um, and you know, we are now at the twenty-year average. So the standard variable home loan rate is now at its twenty-year average. Mm-hmm. Um, that the the COVID period, where we had unusually low fixed rates, driven by government intervention in the market, um, made fixed rates a no-brainer through twenty twenty 2020, twenty 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 one and. <laughs> Okay. and into 2022 um that intervention's gone through so that that was an unusual period and now we're back at an average so do we see there being long term lower rates on the horizon i'm not sure that we that would be a realistic expectations but i think there's probably a Fair view that they may have peaked. But the bigger question for people is not trying to second guess the markets because, yeah, there's a lot smarter people than, than you or I doing this every day, spending their entire waking life working out what fractions of percentage points might make. Um, the bigger decision is well, how much house do I buy?
2: And it uh, uh, seems like. Um that trying to uh, beat the banks at the fixed versus variable rate discussions similar to having a few beers and trying to count cards at the blackjack table it just probably won't happen that easily um yeah. but you'll probably have a better chance of counting cards at the blackjack table <laughs>
1: because you know that is largely about tilting the odds in your favour. So that if you can count you can have an edge over the um over the croupier at the at the casino, and it is a bit of a game of skill. Can you do the same thing against you know trillions of dollars of um, interest rate trades every day? I don't think so. No. Yeah. And and I so said the bigger question is, you know, how much house do I buy, and how much of it can I borrow, and can I afford to borrow at Very variable rate. They're the bigger questions. So the decision as to whether I buy spend. In our know, example earlier, seven hundred thirty-five thousand or seven hundred ten thousand dollars—that's going to have a much bigger impact on your lifestyle over the the length of time you're going to own the property. But once you've made that decision and you've made the decisions to how much deposit you're going to put down, now you should start looking at: um, Am I getting the best rate? And um, you know, the banks are being hugely competitive right now. We may have seen the cashback trend disappear. Mm. Um, I think the banks realized how unprofitable that was, and um, we're now back to a bit of a more sensible market. But you know, we thought that when these fixed rates rolled off the so-called fixed- rate cliff that everyone was worried about, um, that we'd be refinancing people to other banks. But as it happens, the outgoing banks are really sharpening their pencils. And so, what we found is repricing with the existing bank often gives the consumer a better answer with less paperwork to move. But you have to ask, and um yeah, there's a reason why two-thirds of all home loans are now arranged by mortgage brokers, and it's because there is more to it than meets the eye. Um, yeah, if you've got a low LVR stable income and um, Good credit, then um, you can potentially shop on price. But if you're looking to borrow a little bit more or your income's a little bit um, unusual, then policy matters more. And so price only matters when you can borrow what you want when you want it. And um, once you've got that, now you can start looking at price. And the banks are being hugely competitive. So if you haven't looked at your home loan the last couple of years, Definitely, time to have a have a look. But we are seeing that people have been, you know, with interest rates going up and incomes not rising at the same speed. Most people's ability to borrow has been reduced, and so you may not qualify for the same loan you qualified for three years ago. So, definitely worth shopping around.
2: Yes, the so-called mortgage prisoners. I I suppose that the the question around you know if you take out if you look at a seven hundred and ten thousand dollar home. Versus a seven thirty thousand dollar home or seven fifty thousand dollar home, yep. as as you detailed, you know that that question might have been um, less of a speed bump in your buying journey a few years ago when money was that's cheaper right, interest yep. rates were cheaper. But now that thirty grand or forty grand is looking a lot more expensive than it, it might have been. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll,
1: that, we'll, yeah, go on. Yeah, and that sort of um, you know, feeds into the hex decision. Yeah, you know, three or four years ago, when interest rates were low you would almost never recommend that a prospective first-home buyer pay off their HECS, that the money was far more valuable, used as a deposit to reduce their lender's mortgage insurance bill and ensure they, they could borrow what they wanted to borrow. The most people were deposit-constrained, um, whereas today we're seeing more people borrowing capacity constrained, that there's mm. the amount of money the bank will lend them based on their income is now the limiting factor for most people. So in that case, it can make sense to pay off your hex balance, which increases your borrowing capacity even at the expense of reducing your deposit. Mm -hmm. So there is obviously no one size fits all. And so that obviously depends on each individual. But yeah, what would
2: never have made sense three or four years ago is starting to make sense for a lot of people that um that sort of reared its head for me last year when I uh, decided exactly the same thing. I uh, do I sacrifice some home deposit to pay off hex, um, and I ultimately oh. did, and then I avoided the I think seven point one percent indexation in the process and saved yeah. myself fifteen hundred bucks or whatever it was. Um, and now I'm you know it's a good debt to have, but now I'm I'm debt free. So yeah, it yeah. was a it was a good it was a easier question for me uh, at only what sixteen grand uh, yeah. uh, residual balance, but uh, for a lot of others, you know if they if their home deposits fifty thousand dollars and their hex debt's fifty thousand dollars, it might be a much harder question because they're essentially wiping it out and starting again. But that's right, and it only makes sense if you can wipe it out completely because the
1: way the banks look at it is the not how big the balance is, um, but what the impact on your income take home, what your take home pay is. And so, Wiping out half of it doesn't change the analysis. You've got to be able to get rid of all of it, which yeah makes sense for some people. But yeah, five years ago that would very rarely make sense for most people. Um, mm. But it does it does highlight the um, yeah the problem with the old good debt bad debt argument, um, which is a bit value laden. So I'm not a fan of that distinction. We look at trying to categorise debts into three categories. Um, we have red debts, which usually arise because you spend more than you earn, and that's usually credit cards, line of credit, um, buy now, pay later, um, interest-free credit. So it it's harder to get rid of. Not only is it more expensive, but you've actually got to cut your spending before you can even start making an attempt and get rid of it. So that's why we call them red debts, you know, red for danger. Um not an absolute blanket ban, but they're certainly the ones you would think most about. We then talk about amber debts, you know, amber for caution or proceed only if it's safe to do so. Um they're things where you're spreading the cost of an asset over the lifetime you're going to own it. So things like a car loan, house loan, um where it's really you know why do you need to own the bit of the car you're never going to use for example um so if you can align your spending with the period you're going to use it then that's a good thing obviously comes at a cost but cash has consequences too and then of course we have green debts which doesn't mean go it means go if the way is clear and um that's where you would look at loans that increase your assets or income earning. So Hex is a good example there. Um, investment property loans, margin loans. <coughs> so all of those things have the ability to increase your future wealth, but you still have to be careful that you can service them as and when the bank's going to want its money. So, um, And it's also much less value-laden, um, good, bad, is it's very binary um and not all not all credit card debt is bad debt and not all investment debt is good debt
0: Vince we'll move on to something that's been you know trending a lot on the airwaves and uh, making headlines all over the place lately and that's the changes to the stage three tax cuts uh-huh. um what do you make of them and uh you know how is this going to impact uh, consumer and consumer spending behaviors and and uh, budgets uh, going into 2024,
1: 2025? Yeah, a little bit of history sort of enlightening when we start thinking about it. The the stage three taxes was the third and final tranche in a probably a decade-long uh, reform of the personal income tax system. And Australia relies very heavily on personal income taxes for its government revenue, like unusually high across the world. Um some of that's historic. Um, but you know, the vast bulk of the income the government raises comes from personal income taxes and it's heavily skewed towards the top rate taxpayers. So the three percent of the workforce that pays the top rate pays 30% of all taxes. Um and so there was an attempt in um you know to try and level that out a little bit. But by splitting it into three and leaving the benefit for the higher rate taxpayers till the end was always a political risk. Um, that there was always the risk that they could be portrayed at the time as being, you know, giving money to the rich at the expense of the poor. Um, because when you see it in isolation, that's absolutely what it looks like. So, you know, there was always the risk that the media would lead to it never happening. Um, if you believe the conspiracy theories, you would say that this was the ticking time bomb left by the previous government for the current government. Um, I'm not sure I by that level of deviousness. but um, So they've been coming for a long time. They've been baked into all the economists' forecasts, and the net effect of all of that would have been to simplify the number of rates. And so that the vast bulk of people would end up with a flat 30% tax still would result in the top 3% paying the lion's share of the the taxes. Um, Whether you think that's a good thing or not, it's a political argument that's probably not for today. Um, And so the recent changes have been to skew those slightly towards the lower end, which is really doubling up on the... um, On the cuts that were delivered five or more years ago. Um, So whether it's fair or whether it's a broken promise, um, I guess that's for the political scribes to squabble over and speculate over. But the net effect of all of this is that um, middle Australia will end up with more money in their pocket and the cash has been skewed to lower income earners. So the vast bulk of taxpayers will pay less tax in 2024, uh, sorry, twenty four twenty is the tax year beginning July 1, 2024. Um, and higher rate taxpayers will get less of a benefit than they would otherwise have. Um, there's a strong likelihood that that will be inflationary, um, in the sense that um, if you put more money in people's pockets, particularly lower income earners, they will spend more of it. Whereas if you put it in the pocket of um, wealthier people, they will save more of it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of economic modeling that goes with that. Um, and any increase, any decrease in tax or increase in government spending will be working counter to what the reserve bank is doing so yeah you're pushing and pulling at the economy which which one wins we'll only know in in hindsight but yeah it's certainly going to be welcome for most people to end up with more money in their pocket come july 1 all of that of course is contingent on the parliament actually passing these changes so the Original stage three tax cuts are law, and so if nothing happens, that's what will happen on July 1. The changes need to go through the um, the parliament. Um, it looks like the Greens may not be particularly disposed to pass them as proposed. So it will be interesting to see what deals get done. But that's that's the challenge. So either way, um, yeah, most people will end up with more money in their pockets in the new year. The only question is how much and for whom. And that's got to be welcome relief to help offset some of the increased costs. Whether it makes the Reserve Bank's job harder, yeah, I guess we will see in due course. And of course. Interest rates are a very blunt instrument. They affect really only a third of households, the third of households who have mortgages on the house they live in. Um, And they tend to be younger. They tend to be more, more parents with kids. And of course, it makes it harder for new home buyers to get into the market. On the other hand, it um, provides greater income for retirees who rely on bank deposits for much of their income, and they're likely to spend more of that. So um, That's the challenge, Um, but clearly it's welcome. Um, It will make tax planning simpler for a lot of people, um, and it may very well change how you split your investments between a couple. So certainly something that's worth having a look at. but it is very much dependent on yeah, your total household income and how it's split between the couple and how much of your income gets spent on
2: mortgage payments. I guess um, hindsight's always 20-20 and, yes, right. and, and the drawbacks will, uh, will be dissected for years to come, I'm sure. Um, I feel like maybe the previous government um you know, legislated these to really have a good go at reforming tax um yeah. and the income tax system and um and the current government kind of uh propose it as a maybe a short-term win in this cost of living crisis at, at the expense of uh, longer form tax reform um but Vince Scully right. we've um we've s- sort of running out of time here um so we'll just wrap it up there and um just pass on our thanks for you for joining us on the, Savings Tip Jar podcast on what to watch out for in 2024. Well, it's great being here. Um, We've had a bit of a blast, so uh, thanks for having me. Good stuff. Thank you, Vince.